This week, I'm joined by Rosa Brooks. I make my new favorite creation, a cookie, a scone and a cookie, and we discuss her book, which follows her time as a police reservist. Rosa and I take a deep look into the process of becoming a police officer and the challenges and the complexities of doing the job when you're taught everyone's out to kill you. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, Rosa Brooks. Thank you so much for coming on The Secret Life of Cookies today. You're in your kitchen. I'm in my kitchen. Um, you, uh, well known to the deep state radio people, but anybody new listening would know you as a professor of law at Georgetown University, a scholar of um, human rights, and the author of a new book called Tangled Up in Blue about um, policing the American city. Thank you so much for coming today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> my pleasure. Now, typically on this you know, little show, it's like we're in the kitchen together and we're gonna cook something together, but not today. You're gonna do something we all have been doing maybe nonstop during the pandemic, and that is clean your kitchen. Clean. I am going to clean my kitchen because my kitchen somehow, um, you know that you know that fairy tale where the cobbler is making shoes and he doesn't have enough time and like the little elves come at night and they make his shoes for him. Mm -hmm. I have the opposite issue, which is the kitchen is clean and then somehow in the night the little elves come and they unclean it. So yes. I, I'm going to try to reverse that. <laughs> yeah, I even know the names of my little elves. <laughs> yes, I, I think I could identify mine as well. <laughs> um, you said a miracle happened in your house overnight, though. It did. No, um, I came in just now and the dishwasher, which this morning was full of clean dishes because we, we ran it after dinner last night, uh, had miraculously been emptied. This is, I don't think this has ever happened before. So this is in fact, divine intervention. For some reason mm -hmm. in my household, people regard emptying clean dishes out of the dishwasher as a uniquely noxious task. And everybody tries to avoid it and hope that if they pretend they didn't notice the next person will have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it has been spontaneously emptied. And so I'm people just pick, um, my family, they just pick spoons out of it until- right. right. Right, like precisely. It's, it's another cupboard. My husband actually confessed to me, I always suspected him of doing this, and he finally fessed up that he hates removing clean dishes from the dishwasher so much that sometimes he will simply put a single dirty dish in clean dishes and run the whole thing all over again. I was like, I can't believe you do that, but he does. <laughs> I have a new respect for your husband. That is such a great way to think. Or think how he's thought around the problem. I mean, it's brilliant. Not it's brilliant. environmentally conscious. No, 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 no. But <laughs> mentally, he dealt with it in a great way. I have children who don't want to put the dishes in the dishwasher because it's gross. Well, the, dish, the dishwasher is gross and dirty <laughs> dishes are gross. That's, that's a known fact. And apparently I'm the only one who really has these skills. I, I don't know, maybe my graduate degree in history, I, I don't know why, but um, to uh, scrub pots. Yes, I also am the only person who can scrub pots. Um, so I should say Rosa Brooks, professor of law, <laughs> pot author and pot scrubber. The, everyone else in the house works on the theory that they will soak it for a while, which means that I then scrub the pot. Oh my God, I live in your house. Um, <laughs> yes, this is yes, familiar set of challenges. Wonder, if there's some TikTok meme that's going around. Um, <laughs> and I'm gonna I, get myself a glass of water while I listen to you, Marissa. 
that's a fine thing. I will tell um, the folks at home and Rosa Brooks that I am making a recipe that I conjured up um, a couple weeks ago when I asked all the people on Twitter, all of them, um, whether I should make scones or cookies that day. And I was told I should make both. So I thought to myself, how do I do that? And I came up with a recipe that's part scone and part cookie. Um, so it has like scone-like lightness on the insides and a crusty exterior, um, like a cookie. So it's, and it's, it's really good. Does it have a flavor or, or is it sort of neutral? You can give it any flavor you like. These have a little bit of orange zest in them and chocolate chips. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but you could do blueberries and lemon. You could do anything that you could imagine in a scone in this one, except it's kind of flat. So um, you'll see they're small and little like a cookie. Anyway, do you have an approach to your kitchen cleaning? Yeah, and, and this is my, my approach is consists of uh, Lysol and Clorox wipes, which I, I want people to know she has the mega, the mega. I have the mega one. And not only that, but because I was a fanatical Lysol and Clorox wipe aficionado, <laughs> even pre-pandemic, I had so many goddamn Lysol wipes <laughs> that I was able to ride out the pandemic. Although in the last, you know, I finally got down to like one last cylinder and so I only use those wipes for special messes and I had to use inferior wipes for other messes. But now, thank God, the supply chain of Lysol and Clorox wipes has recovered and we can now once again hoard them. And because you are a professor of law, you didn't think of the, doing the immoral thing and like selling them on the black market for mega <laughs> Didn't occur to me. I should have raised money for the kids' college tuition. Exactly. <laughs> hung out at the college, hung out in the parking lot at your kids' school. Oh, right. No school. But uh, hung out at the grocery store. I got some, got some in the back. You could have raised some serious cash. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, next time, next time, for the next pandemic, I will be prepared. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I not just not only want to talk about making my favorite cookies, as Kavita Patel named them, but I also um, really want to talk about, I think your book Tangled Up in Blue really could not have been timed at a better time um, when we all have questions about policing in America. Um, and you went right in there and donned a uniform. And I think I, I'd like to talk to you about the process of being and becoming a police officer and also what their training means to how they do their job now. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. So you said you like woke up one morning and you're like, you know what I'd like to do today? <laughs> I got some spare time. What, what possessed you? You know, I first learned about the Washington DC Reserve Police Program 10 years ago um, by happenstance. Uh, I was listening to a woman doing a sort of federal executive presentation that I had been compelled to go to and so I was bored. I was a woman in her 60s and she was talking and I wasn't really listening. And then suddenly I kind of, you know, snapped back into focus temporarily and I, and she, I heard her saying, um, you know, we all rely on, on stereotypes so they can be very misleading. For instance, take me, uh, you know, I'm a white woman in her 60s. Um, nobody would ever think I'm a police officer, but I am the oldest person who ever went through the Washington DC Police Academy. And when I put handcuffs on people, it challenges their stereotypes really quickly. And I thought, what? You, what? <laughs> You're a volunteer reserve police officer? You know, you can do that? Like people can do that? That's insane. That's totally insane. Um, 
And I also thought when I went home and I, I Googled it and sure enough, there, there is this program, the, the, the reserve Corps, where you can volunteer. And if you're, you're accepted, you don't have a criminal record, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you go through the same police academy curriculum as full-time paid officers. Um, and unlike in many cities where there are auxiliary police who just do things like direct traffic and who aren't, aren't armed and don't have arrest powers, you have you graduate with a badge and a gun and all this stuff and the exact same uniform and the same exact police powers as the full-time paid officers. And it just was so astonishingly weird that this program even existed. And so sort of from the get-go, I thought, wow, that would be so fascinating to do and see what that was like. Um, just sheer curiosity. And at the time, I, I couldn't do it. My kids were, were too little. Um, and I was effectively a single mother you know, and there was no way, you know, said the reserve academy classes are, you know, two nights a week for four or five hours and every Saturday from, you know, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then you have to have two entire weeks of firearms training during the day and two, you know, two weeks of vehicle skills. And, and I just thought, okay, you know, I can't do that. Um, but it kept popping back into my mind. Um, and, you know, a few years later, my kids were a bit older and my husband was around, uh, you know, he, he had been deployed, uh, deployed the previous year, I thought, you know, what the hell? <laughs> uh, let's, I, let's do this, see what it's like. So you had to learn, had you, like, could you do a push-up before this? Could you, had you fired a gun? Was it something like you grew um, up doing? I had gone skeet shooting a couple of times, and I think I fired a 22 rifle once at a, you know, summer camp. But that was it. So And, so and no. you told everybody out there, yeah, I got the skeet shooting. Yeah, <laughs> this uh, is my skills. Yeah, you know, I was actually pretty good at skeet shooting. I, I would those clay pigeons, man. You know, I just worried about the orphaned baby skeet. When I, I actually, and then they don't make much of a dinner. That's all I'll say. Having no, tried to eat indeed. one, I don't recommend yeah. eating them. Um, <laughs> no, so it was a very different world for me. Um, and most of my reserve corps classmates at the police academy, twelve of the sixteen were former military or, or current military, um, and several, two or three people had prior law enforcement experience, including a guy who'd been an NYPD cop for five years and had moved to DC and wanted to be a reserve officer. Um, I was one of two women out of 16 people. Uh, and uh, yes, it was, it was an immersion in a very different world. But the same training, just not as long, I mean, similar training to what a, a Metropolitan Police officer would get. I kind of wonder what the benefit is to, the, to having a reserve police crew that can also arrest people and you know sort of like weekend police officer yeah what's what's the yeah your, your obligation after you finish at the academy is 24 patrol hours a month and on top of that whatever mandatory uh additional professional development training and firearms requalifications and all that kind of stuff that that career officers have to do as well and um you know, I think I think there. I think it's actually a great program, um, and I think more cities should have it. And it, I think it does it does two things, um, not dissimilar to the military reserves, you know, which always boast these are citizen soldiers, the guard and the reserves. Um, you know, one thing it does is it takes people who are not cops, you know, and have other different lives, you know, who are lawyers, who do IT stuff, whatever, and they become part-time police officers and often they can bring in new perspectives and different perspectives 
Uh, they also tend to be older on average than the recruits of the police academy. And there are, there's, there is a good deal of evidence suggesting that use of excessive force is most common amongst young males and, and particularly in fact, young white males. Um, older cops are often you know, better at using verbal skills to mm-hmm. diffuse the situation, less likely to turn to force. Um, you know, so I think it, it both brings that infusion of ordinary citizens into the department. But the other thing from the department's perspective, again, much like the military reserve, although it's not mandatory, you can't be called up against your will, you're just a volunteer, the department will ask for reserves to help out if, for instance, there's a particular patrol district with lots of people on leave, they'll say we're short officers here, could you, you know, any reserves could come, uh, you know, to backfill to help out when there are situations that essentially require extra people. So it's just a source of extra, extra manpower, person power. Could you have been there on January 6th? Had you still been in the crew? Did they use reserve officers? Did they officers um, sh- show up? Um, <laughs> so the, the D, no, the DC police kind of saved the day because um, yeah. you know they came rode to the rescue for the Capitol Police. Um, um, unlikely, the the units that were sent into the Capitol uh, were had some additional specialized training. Um, what they did ask reserve officers to do during the on, on January sixth was fill in in the patrol districts because so many patrol districts were shorthanded because so many of their officers had gone to the Capitol. Um, so, you know, I, I had already left the reserve corps by then, um, but as I watched all this on TV, you know, there, I, do, I do know a number of officers who were there on January 6th. Um, and, you know, I think for all of them, it was really kind of a, a shattering experience. Yeah, I think it, the scales dropped off a lot of people's eyes that day. So you became a sworn, uh, officer, you became you earned a certificate that allowed you to make arrests, right, and to carry a, a gun with you. And I just wondered, like, when that happened, as just like going from, in a sense, ordinary citizen to police officer on the side. Do you feel like Clark Kent in, in like what you're up to, like you know, at, at any moment at the bake sale, you know, in the uh, parking lot at Whole Foods on Thanksgiving, where there's always a fist fight in, well, at least where I live, um, do <laughs> something about that organic food really gets people head up. Um, did you feel like at any moment you could like, you know, do, do an arrest or, you know, you were like Clark Kent waiting to come out as Superman? No, not really. I mean, I mean <laughs> when you're off duty, when you're off duty, you're not supposed to, you don't have police powers if you're a reserve officer. Um, you can carry your weapon off duty, but the very strong guidance that we received, very strong and very wise guidance was do what you would do if you had no police training. You know, uh, well, obviously if you need to use first aid skills you learned or whatever, go ahead. But, but no, don't, don't decide that to be an off duty cop, that is really dangerous idea. Do what any normal person would do, call 911. <laughs> when they get there, say, I am a reserve officer and, you know, explain but don't, don't try to be a hero because that's how people end up getting into big trouble. Oh, but as a lawyer, did you bring a different sense? Like, is there a different sense of justice and how justice works as a lawyer versus as a trained police officer? Like, did you see a different perspective? You know, I don't think police officers by and large 
spend their time thinking that much about justice. Um, and frankly, most lawyers don't either. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm not sure I would contrast lawyers with cops necessarily, but but I Rosa Brooks. Uh, no, I, th I think I think policing tends to attract sort of pragmatic people who are not interested in grand theory of anything very much. I mean, then there are exceptions. There are obviously exceptions, um, but and, and many and for many people, policing is, is just is a job. It's just a job, um, and and policing in many U.S. cities has traditionally been a route, an upward mobility route, uh, particularly for African Americans. Um, you know, it's a steady government job. You get a good pension after 20 or 25 years. Um, you get good benefits. Uh, you know, it's a way to to support your family. And, and so, so I do think for a lot of police officers, it's not that they don't care about right or right or wrong, you know, um, but it's more of a, this is my job. Um, when I'm on my shift, my job is to go, you know, stuff comes over the radio. Um, I get assigned to particular calls to respond to particular calls. I go there, I figure out what I need to do, you know, and sometimes that's nothing. Sometimes it's something that doesn't lead to an arrest. Uh, relatively rarely, a small, tiny proportion of calls do. Um, I write the report if there's a report to be written, and then I go to the next call. And then I do the same thing again and again, and then my shift is over and I do it the next day. You know, that, 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 <sighs> There aren't a lot of opportunities, and here's this is this is the tragedy actually, is that there aren't a lot of opportunities in which cops are asked to or have the opportunity to reflect on the sort of bigger picture. You know, the, what are we doing? What are we doing? Does it help people? Does it hurt people? And and I actually do think quite a lot of officers are hungry for that kind of discussion. But policing, like the military, is very hierarchical. Patrol, order, patrol officers is the lowest rank. Um, the chief does not welcome patrol officers. I shouldn't say that the current chief's a terrific guy, um, but just it, chiefs in general mm -hmm. do not right. welcome, you know, the hoi polloi, the patrol officers, you know, calling him up and saying, hey, chief, I've got a few ideas about how this department really ought to change, you know, and by the way, I don't think we should be doing traffic stops for civil infractions. Oh boy, are you in trouble? You have to jump the chain of command, you know. Um, so, so it, police departments are not structured to be learning organizations, and they're not structured to be self-reflective organizations. And they could be, um, and it, it's incredible missed opportunity. So, all these things that you think were kind of obvious that a policing organization should discuss, including the junior people at the bottom, like, like what is good policing? <laughs> You know, what does it what does that mean? Do we do we know what it means? Do we you know it does it mean driving around in your car? Does it mean walking around? Does it mean sitting in the goddamn station until somebody calls you? Does it mean going to barbecues and basketball games? Does it mean arresting lots of people and stopping a lot of cars? You know what does it what does it mean? And if we think we know what good policing is, do we know how to measure whether in fact it's working? You know all these kind not to mention all these difficult issues around race and policing, violence and policing. You know, those are conversations that should be happening in a routine basis within police departments, but typically do not. To the extent that they do happen, they happen only at the most senior level. Yeah, in your book, you were saying that they teach very basic lessons at the police academy, right? And that the thing that tends to be missing is what, what their role is in society but also that they're like the basic lesson that they're learning is your job as a police officer is to get home safely. 
And, yeah. I, and it seems to me that that has some implications on how they see their role in society or, you know, in the community, I should say, less in society, but in the community. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's right. You know, the, the training, the academy training is, is very tactically oriented uh, and there's a lot of minutia and memorization. Um, not a lot of, you know, let's, let's talk about what good policing, good, what good policing looks like, or let's talk about whether structural racism makes it possible for there to be such a thing as good policing. You know, those mm -hmm. conversations don't happen. Um, but there's a tremendous emphasis on, on what gets termed officer safety. Uh, and you're, it's really drilled into you that, uh, you know, any situation could turn lethal in a millisecond. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as a routine call. Um, and we would watch these videos of cops getting killed. And, and this, then this happens, obviously, right? I mean, there, the week before I started at the academy, there was a young female officer in a neighboring jurisdiction uh, who was shot and killed um, by a domestic violence suspect on her first day out of the academy. You know, she and uh, her couple of other officers, as they were approaching the house where they'd gotten a domestic violence call to respond, um, you know, as they were sort of approaching, walking out the front walkway, a guy burst out the door, started shooting. She, she was killed. Uh, a couple of other officers ended up with serious injuries. Um, so that, that happens, you know, and we would watch, we watch videos of terrible things like this and talk about how could those officers have avoided that, you know, where could they have approached from a different angle? Could they, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Could they have, you know, somebody peek in the window before you go up to the door? Um, and I, and I, you know, up to a point that's obviously really useful and important. Um, but I do think that all the emphasis on, you know, situations turning lethal in a millisecond and, you know, you have a right to go home safe can do two things. You know, one is it can make, make cops, some cops forget that everybody else has a right to go home safe too. Um, but, but number two, you know, if you, if you think a threat can come from anyone at any time, anywhere, you're much more apt to see threats in everyone, everywhere. And that's going to affect how you interact with people. You know, they tell, they tell us, you know, watch their hands, not their eyes. Their hands can kill you, their eyes can't. You know, don't, don't interview suspects in the living room. Don't let them sit on the sofa. They could have a weapon hidden in the cushions. Don't interview them in the kitchen. They could easily grab one of their butcher knives. <laughs> she know. grabbed a butcher knife, people. I feel threatened. <laughs> um, and that's a crappy way to treat most people, right? Mm -hmm. If you're staring at their hands and won't let them sit down and... But if you're primed to think everybody's going to try to kill you, it, it has a profound impact on even the most minor interactions with people. And in the most extreme cases, it can make cops really trigger happy. Uh, you know, that, that if you're primed to think that every time somebody reaches into a place you can't see, they're going to pull out a gun and shoot you, there will inevitably be some cops who decide that they should just shoot first, ask questions later. You know, the average, um, let's say, liberal teenager right now, um, just using an, exa an example close to home, all, has, you know, a sort of knee-jerk um, view of the police, which involves them using excessive force. And I, I guess that sort of training can, and the things that they've seen in the media, you know, the big stories that they've seen in the media, second that, you know, view. Do you think that this, like, Excessive force has been happening 
you know, in 1% of cases around the country? Is it something that is new and it's just, or is it something like this has always been happening and now we're aware of it? Um, how, I, think, yeah. I think it's always been happening and now we're aware of it. Um, I also think that, you know, it's, I think two things are true at once um, and they seem in tension with one another, but I, I don't think they actually are. You know, one is that the vast majority of police officers will never even point to their weapon at anyone in their entire career over 25 or 30 years, um, much less shoot somebody with it. Um, it's a rare police officer who has shot someone with their weapon under any circumstances. Um, and, and that the other, in fact, when you look at studies of excessive force, um, over and over, it turns out that it's sort of, you know, it's 10% it's of the cops have 90% of the excessive force complaints. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody in the department knows who those cops are, uh, right. which in turn goes to a whole range of other issues like the power of police unions and why we don't have a national police certification system uh, because we, we in, in our system all too often, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to fire even a cop who everybody knows is, you know, a, a, a killing waiting to happen. Um, so, 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 um, so that's one of the truths is that mm -hmm. most police encounters do not involve use of force at all. Um, you know, there does nobody is touching anybody. Um, you know, there are things like taking sick people to the hospital, giving CPR to a guy who overdosed or, or Narcan. Um, you know, intervening to mediate a dispute, things like that. But um, you know, the other reality is that police in America use lethal force far more often than police in any other democratic country, kill far more people. Um, and we do have a police and violence problem, you know, no question about it, a police and violence problem that is, that is um, created by police training, that, that is exacerbated by uh, a legal architecture that makes it extraordinarily difficult to hold police officers accountable uh, mm -hmm. for killings, even when clearly they were at fault mm -hmm. at a minimum, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there, there, there are a million, re well, I, I don't, don't wanna to get too boring and wonky and legalistic, so I'll stop right there. I mean, there's also another problem in this country, which is a lot of people have arms. Yeah, and I and I don't mean the kind with hands at the end of them. So, police officers uh, have a you know they're up against that as well. Your stove looks very clean. I mean, I don't I know that's a bit of a you know change here, but it's a beautiful. She has a beautiful white stove, everyone. And oh my God, she's just put the the Lysol wipe says the Lysol wipe the Lysol wipe says wipe no says not so much. It's the white glove of cleaners. You look and the filth. The filth is just. Yeah, I can't get the foot in your print. There is something that seems like it might be guacamole on the fridge. <laughs> or it didn't used to be green and now is finally oh, yeah. turning green. How how does it feel though, you know, to be a cop if the world sort of thinks you're its enemy? Like how do you combat that? You know, I think it's it's very hard. It is very hard for a lot of cops because um, you know, in keeping with the 90% of the excessive force and 90% of the complaints about rudeness and so on come, you know, involve 10% of the cops or I mean, I'm making those up. It's not actually 90, 10, but sure, it sure. tends to be a similar dis dis disproportion. Um, you know, and I, and I don't also, I 
caveat, um, I don't mean to suggest that I'm just saying, oh, it's a bunch of rotten apples and the barrel's fine. You know, the, there are lots of rotten parts of the barrel too, but, mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, for the good apples, even in a barrel that's partly rotten, um, you know, for the, for the cops who, you know, join the police department because they think of it as a helping profession and, and many officers do, mm -hmm. you know, I, many of the officers I, I met were people who had either themselves been victims of violent crime or had loved ones or friends who'd been victims of violent crime. And I heard all these heartfelt stories about, and that's why I wanted to be a police officer because I wanted to protect other people, you know, and keep them from going through what I went through or comfort them if they had to go through that. Um, and for those officers, I think, you know, there, there's a bit of a sense of, of hurt and bafflement Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and which is another reason that it's so important for officers to be talking about things like structural racism. Um, um, but, but, you know, um, I remember a conversation with some young officers, uh, in a, in a fellowship program we run at Georgetown for young officers. This was, this was, um, in the summer. Um, and they were talking about how, when the COVID epidemic, when COVID, when the pandemic started, and they'd be they'd be patrolling, and people would come up to them and say, "Thank you, officer. You know, we appreciate that you're out here doing your job, even in this situation. You know, you're putting yourselves in danger, and thank you." And then after George Floyd's, can I, I remember one of the young officers saying, "And then a, then cops in Minneapolis kill George Floyd, and that's terrible. And I I think it's terrible. And suddenly people are spitting at me here." Um, and what happened? You know, the, the, there's this sort of sense of bafflement and that can easily lead, you know, there are, all, there are lots of things about policing that can lead to cynicism, um, burnout, bitterness, uh, high police have uh, one of the highest occupational suicide rates. Um, but I do think, yeah, I do think it's, 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 it's confusing for a lot of officers and even the ones, and we do have, you know, we do have young officers in our fellowship program, I know there are others not in our fellowship program, you know, who have a very sophisticated understanding of history, the history of policing, the role of policing in order maintenance, the role of policing, uh, the history of policing as, as emerging in part out of slave patrols, um, the history of segregation and discrimination in so many American cities, and do understand that, that even the ones who absolutely get that and view themselves as change agents from within, that's their aspiration. I think even for those people in the day-to-day -day encounters, it can feel hurtful to them when people respond by spitting at them, which happens from time to time. Although, you know, let me also just say, despite all that, I, you know, I had a few occasions where people cursed or spat at us, but far, far more occasions where people were appreciative and thanked us. And, and, and that is partly because, and I do think this is something that, you know, to, to your average uh, woke teenager, and I, I have my own, um, what they miss is that, as I said earlier, um, the vast majority of the job patrol officers do is, is helping, you know, is responding when people call 911. Um, and people call 911 because something terrible is happening and they really want the police to come. And when the police show up, they're usually pretty glad they're there. Um, not the perpetrator, but the, you know, the people who call the police. Um, you know, so, so the violence and abuses and, and racism are real. 
but the helping is real too. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really strong, a good and strong message. Um, the pol police academy, you know, has this job of like turning a hodgepodge of humans into a force. But like, who who do you see who goes into the um, into policing now? So in DC, it it tends to be a mix of um, you know working class and lower middle class young people. Uh, it's majority minority department. Um, uh, African American hovers around fifty percent. Then you know fifteen or twenty percent uh, uh, Hispanic. Um, you know another five or so percent miscellaneous other <laughs> and maybe twenty percent white. I don't know those those numbers don't actually add up, but they you know you get the idea. Um, um, and you know some of them just see it as a job. It's just a job. Uh, many of them, as I said, see it as a as a helping profession. And there are some, you know, there are some who see it as an opportunity to boss people around and have an excuse to do so. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like being out on patrol for you? It's sort of fascinating, you know, and, and um, it's simultaneously, it's often boring and it's also fascinating. And even the boring parts are kind of fascinating if you're an outsider, um, sort of the, the strange, patterns of patrolling, the rhythms of patrolling is that there is no rhythm. Um, you can have back-to-back -back calls with back-to-back -back very serious violent crimes um, in a period of four hours. You can also have four hours go by in which absolutely nothing happens and the radio is silent, you know, or you get nothing but calls for really trivial disorderly conduct offenses and, you know, um, and, and there's just no way to predict. I mean, there's a little bit, you know, for instance, certain, you know, Friday night, Thursday night, Saturday night, um, you know, that you're, you're getting, you get more of certain times of crimes, um, you know, you get more, more assaults and so on, you know, between 7 p.m. and midnight, you get more burglaries, you know, between midnight and 5 a.m., um, you know, there's some patterns, but, but, you know, there, there is not only is there some truth to there's no such thing as a routine call um, from a safety perspective, but it's also true that there's sort of no such thing as a standard shift because you never know what's going to come along. Um, and that is part of what makes it interesting. Um, it's also part of what makes it really, really challenging that, and, and part of the reason I think, I think cops have a kind of impossible job on some level, um, you know, that, that they can go to one call where somebody called in and said, my friend, I think my friend is trying to commit suicide. Um, and so there you are, and you're, you're trying to be a mental health counselor in an emergency situation, you know, and then you get a call, um, my kid is missing and you're trying to be a detective. Um, and then you get a call, you know, I think this guy has overdosed and you're being a medic, you know, and then you get a call for robbery in progress, you know, or, or, or sound of gunshots and you're, you know, you're rushing into the middle of what could be a violent situation. And then you get a call from somebody saying, you know, the kids on the corner um, are harassing people and you get there and there are no kids in the corner. <laughs> you know, and, and the sort of range of roles mm -hmm. is so vast and doing any one of these jobs, you know, mediating, being a medic, um, you know, being a warrior, being a mentor, um, being a social worker, doing any one of those jobs is actually really, really hard doing any one of those jobs well. And 
we're asking these often quite young people, I mean, especially in the district I was in, um, many of the officers were quite young, you know, they were in their early 20s and asking them to go in the same night to all these things, you know, if it's very hard to do any of those jobs well, it's almost impossible to do all of them well. Right, so if we did a lightning round and I gave you one, one word or two words and I said, quick, what's your response to it? I have a feeling, um, and the lightning round is only gonna be one round. And I said to you, defund the police. Um, what, what is your instant reaction to that? Um, wrong, wrong phrase. Um, you know, I would say, you know, reimagining re, re public safety, better phrase. Um, you say defund the police to a cop and they say, have you seen the station I work out of? Have you seen my vehicle? Have you seen my equipment? Um, you know, I can't, I don't have the resources to do the job you tell me to do citizens. You know, I didn't make this job up. I have no power. I'm at the bottom of the heap in this organization. I'm doing what the citizens of this city through their elected legislators and the, and the chief of police appointed by their elected representatives have decided that I should do. And I can barely do it with the resources that I currently have. And now you wanna take money away. Mm -hmm. um, if you say to the same cop though, tell me about the things that you do that, that you don't think you should be doing. Um, you will get an earful. You know, I don't know what to do with the suicide guy. I feel so helpless. You know, I don't know what to do in this situation. I feel so helpless. You know, I'm not the right person for that. And if you say also, you know, what city services don't exist that you wish exist so that your job would be easier. They say, you know, the guy walking around in traffic waving a knife um, because he's crazy and talking to himself because he hears voices. I pick that guy up and I take him involuntarily to the emergency psychiatric clinic. And the next day he's out doing the same thing. And how do I do my job when there's, you know, no, no functioning mental health care system, for instance, you know, it is my job to go get the guy with the knife. You know, we can't really ask the social workers to go do that. And I'm happy to go get the guy with the knife, but you know, you city, you state, you're sending this guy right back out. And that's, it's, you know, it's crazy. Um, and I think once you start having that conversation, you actually quite quickly get to a place where critics of policing and police officers have a lot of common ground, you know, mm -hmm. and that can open up the space for a really different kind of conversation. One that says, let's work together to think about, you know, what would public safety for this community mean from the perspective of community members, from the perspective of cops, from the perspective of city officials, et cetera, you know, let's think, what would we like this city to look like in 10 years? Or, you know, what agencies that don't exist would we want? What agencies that now exist would need to change? What, what cadre of people who aren't right. currently employed by the city would, would need to be there? What are we investing in within policing that is a waste of money and any cop can give you a long list, you mm -hmm. know, and what things within policing are we under investing in? You know, how do we how do we recalibrate investments? How do we think differently about recruiting and training? How do we build up the capabilities that nobody has right now? You know, then I think you're you're in a you're in a really constructive conversation uh, that has the potential to get us somewhere much better. Is there some hope of that kind of conversation happening? Uh, off the top off the top of your head, uh, I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just mean, you know. Is there some sort of national leadership that needs to happen? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, there is, you know, and I would love to see, I mean, what, well, let me back up. I, I think it's really hard. One of the reasons it's hard is that policing is incredibly decentralized in the US. We don't have a national police force, unlike many countries. Um, so there's no boss of all the cops in the United States who can say, okay, I'm gonna start a process where we do this and now we're changing in the following ways. Um, you know, there are 18,000 separate law enforcement agencies in the country, ranging from, you know, campus cops and, you know, uh, FBI, you know, local right. cops, sheriff's offices, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing Police, you know, zillions. And none of them think they work for the other and none of them think they have to listen to the other. I mean, there are some exceptions, obviously, you know, state legislatures have the power to control to, to a great extent police within their state. So, and so on, but it's very it's very decentralized, so it makes change quite difficult. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you know I think President Biden has an, an incredible opportunity to bring people together from many different communities. So, you know, Obama did something similar. He had the President's Commission on Twenty First Century Policing. Um, you know, to have to, to follow up on that process with slightly different and and more more radical agenda to sort of to really uh -huh. engage in that process of you know let's do let's take five cities and invest in having those conversations with people you know and what would we come up with you know if those conversations were had not in an adversarial way but in a collaborative way what would we come up with can we try this um you know i, I do think there are opportunities will 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 they be realized i'm i'm somewhat less sure uh -huh. I have uh, two questions uh, for you. Be just before we uh, go, uh, I really the I read about your collaboration with Georgetown that you created with Georgetown Law and the Metropolitan Police Force. So it's a fellowship program, uh, fellowship. and it really was inspired by what 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 we didn't talk about at the police academy. It, it's it's a competitive program. Officers need to apply, um, and not everybody obviously gets in. Um, and this is done in collaboration with the police department. And they help us by, you know, screening candidates so that, for instance, we don't get can't be, they'll screen out, for instance, people with civilian complaints against them and people who have disciplinary procedures against them. And, um, and we only take ones at the beginning of their career, too. So they also do the that kind of screening to sort of what was the higher date. And, um, and we select the fellow, the people we want to be fellows. They then come to Georgetown for a series of intensive workshops over the course of about 15 months. Um, and there are workshops on, you know, the list of what you might call the hard questions um, mm -hmm. about race and policing, violence and policing, what is policing for, et cetera. Um, and uh, we're, we're gonna have a workshop next week on domestic violence, um, uh, mental health issues. And we bring in scholars, we bring in activists, we bring in, you know, we brought, we had one where our police were talking to local high school kids, um, prisoners, uh, uh, recently returned prisoners who are out now, um, uh, people who are homeless. And it's, it's really powerful, the conversations that take place, um, both between the fellows and our guest speakers, but also between the between the fellows themselves, you know, their mm -hmm. internal conversations. Um, you know, and in that sense, it is like a classroom. It's like a seminar. Um, it's like a seminar, except the, the students are cops. Um, 
um, and we sometimes have some of our law students sitting in. Um, and the conversations are pretty amazing. Um, we also, the department gives each of the fellows a, a senior level official as a mentor. Mm -hmm. um, so they have someone who they, to whom they can go and say, what do I do in this situation? You know, I don't know what to do. Um, and they also are a support network for each other, you know, and can, they can text each other and say, I'm in this hard spot. What, what do I do? You know, how help, how should I handle this? Um, we're now in our third cohort. Uh, it, you know, sadly, this cohort had to do a virtual start rather than an in-person start. Um, but, but it's, it's been, it's been kind of amazing. And it actually, I know it sounds kind of corny. It's called the police for tomorrow fellowship at Georgetown. Um, and it sounds kind of corny, but it, it does really give me hope that the future of policing will be brighter than its past when you look at some of these young officers. It seems to me that it's the kind of program that could, should be, could be replicated at the universities across the country. Yeah, we, and we, we do already have one sister program, uh, uh, something called the Crescent City Corps in New Orleans that was modeled after the Police for Tomorrow program. And we work very, very closely with the, the people who created and run that program you know, help them, help them get it off the ground. And they do different things. Some, some, they do some things that are very different than what we do, but the sort of core idea is very, very, very much the same is create a space where officers can be part of those conversations about policing and what it's for and how to change it um, with the goal of creating a, a cohort of change agents within. Yeah, I think that's a, the cohort of change agents is kind of key. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. I have one really important question, though, to ask you, which is, um, did police training make you a better parent? <laughs> no, but I think being a parent made me a better police officer. Um, <laughs> you know, somebody said, you know, oh, did you have to learn to have a command voice? And I was like, are you kidding me? I have kids. <laughs> like, I've had a command voice since they were born. Um, you ever been in a room full of toddlers at a birthday party? Like, of course I have a command voice. Um, um, but, but no, I, I, I'm not totally kidding. I, I, many of the officers I worked with are very young. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I do think that as someone who's older and as a parent, you know, particularly in situations involving kids and teenagers, um, you know, you, you just do develop a different set of skills and you know, you know, teenagers are going to be obnoxious because that's their job, you know, like mm -hmm. that's what they do. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're going to be lifelong criminals. It means that they are teenagers. And, and sometimes I think it was hard. We, we also in our, in our workshops, uh, fellows workshops, we do, we do a unit on adolescent brain development to remind them that it's the job of teenagers to be jerks. Um, mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you should lock them up. In fact, the opposite, um, you know, sometimes you may have to lock them up something really egregious, but but, uh, you know, that you can't interpret behavior from a teenager in the, the way you would interpret the same behavior in a 40-year-old. Uh, I remind myself of that daily. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you kids? 15 and like 18. Yeah, yeah. Mine, are, mine are 16 and 19. Right. So, same yeah. idea. Yeah. It's all about the development of the brain. But I think that um, you're doing amazing stuff out there. And I um, really liked your book. And um, I'm I, my, my skookies. My skookies. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, I know. How are the... They're looking very good. And, and my daughter... Popped, but... Yeah, 
yeah, it's like a cookie and a scone, you know, scone. You look inside and it's very light and delicate. Ah. And you even got, we even got some um, chocolate chip pull there, you know, where you could see the streaming oh, wow. chocolate. Um, and my daughter did come in earlier and give me the chef's kiss. <laughs> I feel, I feel validated. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for cleaning well, your thank kitchen you, along with me. Fun, and thank you for listening to me. And thank you for letting me clean my kitchen while I talked. See, two birds, one stone. Yes, Fantastic yes, way yes, to move. Yes. All right. <laughs> take care. Thank you very much. Thank you to Rosa Brooks for sharing her time and insight into the world of the police. Please follow me on Twitter. And for the spooky recipe, go to marissarothkopf.com. And if you feel like it, you can sign up for my sub stack and keep me able to afford ingredients and create new recipes. Thank you again.